I'm Jim Mellon. Thank you very much, everyone, for attending. We have a lot of people uh, on this call tonight, and it's really nice of you to take the time. And it's also really nice of my uh, co-panelists uh, today, Professor Mark Post, uh, who will be introduced shortly, and Lou Cooperhouse as well. Mark Post is the Chief Scientific Officer of uh, Mosa Meats uh, from the Netherlands, and he is also the probably the best known pioneer in this industry, in the cell ag industry, which I'm going to talk about very briefly. And Lou Cooperhouse is the CEO of an equally exciting company, but in a different field, which is seafood. His company is called Blue Nalu and is based in San Diego, and both of them have taken the time to support this book launch. The book, as you can see, is called uh, Moo's Law. Uh, that's a riff of Moore's Law, which is the famous law that Gordon Moore came up with uh, about 40 years ago. He was the uh, boss of Intel, and that law posited that as uh, scale improves, uh, cost comes down uh, and efficiency goes up. And it's the same thing with what we're talking about uh, today, uh, about the new agrarian revolution. So this book, uh, which was written by ostensibly by me, but was I was helped by many people, including uh, Antti Chow, who's here with me in Dubai at the moment, and will be moderating the questions later on. Uh, Laura Turner, his assistant, my sister Trish, who's been invaluable in putting this book together, uh, Daphina Gracci, uh, Ben Goddard, and Luke Sheridan have all been extremely helpful in putting the uh, the book together. And it's just out and it's available for sale and the proceeds go to the Good Food Institute, which is the, I think the leading advocacy group for um, what we're talking about today, which is replacing uh, intensive farming with uh, better ways of eating. Now, all of us have been affected by the pandemic in some cases very badly. And uh, let's face it, this pandemic comes out of malpractice in the food supply chain, uh, as have all the previous pandemics in the last 20 years. We need to do something about food supply. It's dangerous. The capacity for zoonotic disease transmission, which is animal to human transmission, is obvious to us. In some ways, uh, this pandemic, which has caused so much devastation, uh, would be a walk in the park compared to a pandemic that was bacterial. And as you may know, 80% of antibiotics around the world go into intensively farmed animals. And ultimately, we end up eating those animals, or some people end up eating those animals, uh, and build up resistance to antibiotics. Uh, if, God help us, there was such a bacterial pandemic, uh, this one would look minuscule by comparison in its devastation. Uh, it would be like the Black Death, actually, where about one third of the world's population was killed. Uh, and so we have to do something to stop this. There are many other reasons why we have to do something to improve our food supply. Uh, apart from the antibiotic resistance potential and the hormones that go into intensively farmed animals, it's clear, as many of you will know, that uh, we need to do something about climate change. And 20% of all emissions 
uh, come from intensively farmed uh, animals, husbandry. Um, we also have a water problem in the world. The misuse of water is, or the misallocation of water is an incredible problem in many countries. And the overuse of water in intensive farming is something that needs to be addressed. I mean, as an example, uh, one kilogram of beef uses approximately 15,000 of liters of water uh, to produce. Um, we also have the issue that crops are largely fed to intensively farmed animals. Uh, about 70% of all crops are grown to put into animals, which are very inefficient converters of plant protein into animal protein. So a cow is basically a ratio of 25 to one. Uh, a chicken is a ratio of nine to one. Uh, and uh, the result of that is that you get the Amazon rainforest being chopped down to grow soybeans because those soybeans are not destined on our plates. They're going to feed animals and in intensive farming, which now represents 99% of US farming and 90% of European farming, a lot of these animals never see the light of day until the day they're taken away to be uh, killed and turned into meat. So this is an amazing new industry. We have a confluence at a time of pandemic, uh, which has been caused by food supply problems uh, and a need for a change in uh, the world's protein supply because we can't go on like this. We can't keep on destroying the planet, being cruel to animals in an unbelievably brutal way. Uh, we, we can't carry on, especially since the two big rising nations in the world, India and China, are demanding more and more protein. And if we are 10 billion people on the planet by the year 2050, as we're likely to be, uh, the world uh, ecosystem will simply collapse as a result of the uh, intensive farming industries that uh, have grown up around, around the world. And so something needs to happen. We've seen evidence of how consumers are changing their behavior, how they're changing their diet, becoming more health conscious in plant-based uh, foods. And uh, to give you an example, companies like Beyond and Impossible have really taken off in the last few years as a result of improved taste, texture, and so forth in their products compared to the vegan uh, hamburgers of 20 years ago, which were uh, like eating uh, cardboard, uh, sort of wet cardboard. They are much, much improved. And in my own house, household, we can't tell the difference between a Beyond Burger and a, a regular burger. Uh, but plant-based food doesn't have defensible IP to a large extent. Uh, um, unlike the cell ag foods that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and it doesn't have the capacity of actually becoming cheaper uh, than conventionally farmed uh, food to any great extent. We, we think uh, that we will see griddle parity, which is a description uh, that I use in the book, when the price point of cell ag meats and seafood and other products comes down below the price point of the conventionally farmed or made food or materials uh, as happening in the next five years or so. So we're very, very close to a major revolution. Rethink X, a UK well-regarded consultancy, thinks that by 2030, and that's only nine years away, 50% of all meat in the world uh, will be either plant-based or cell ag produced. 
which is an incredible revolution that's coming. And to give you a foretaste of how that might happen, 10 years ago in the United States, half a percent of milks were alternatives. They were soya or oat or uh, rice or, 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 or almond. And today that figure is 20%. And the two largest milk producers in the United States have gone bankrupt uh, because the economics of their industry have, um, have been altered so radically. And we see the same thing happening in meat and seafood and in some materials such as, for instance, leather uh, or cotton or threads, all of which are now being addressed by uh, companies, startup companies uh, in this industry. Moose Law describes about 60 companies in the field. Uh, we think we've covered every single one of them. If we haven't, then let me know. Um, about 30 of those we consider to be investable and 14 of those are in the portfolio that uh, the team has assembled uh, over the last couple of years, including, of course, Mosa and Blue Nalu, which we consider to be among the best companies in their respective fields uh, in the world. There's not been a huge amount of money uh, into this field uh, thus far. About, uh, we, we estimate around a billion dollars, um, but the money will flood in, and especially as the companies scale up. And scale up means bigger bioreactors, lower uh, cost of media and of growth factors, all of which are important. Uh, it has been told to me that a 2.5 milliliter biopsy from a living cow that goes back to its field or to its feedlock or whatever it, it does uh, can produce the equivalent of seven or eight cows worth of meat, which is about 3,000 kilos uh, in the space of 40 days compared to 28 months to produce uh, the cows that go to slaughter to produce the current uh, meat, meat which is quite often uh, leads to human health problems, including, uh, you know, uh, stomach upsets and maybe hospitalizations. One in six people in the United States get sick every year from contaminated food. This meat will be entirely clean, as will the seafood. And of course, the materials uh, will be better or equivalent to the best materials that can be bought at the moment, which is why, for instance, in leather, uh, luxury good makers are already engaged in uh, commercial contracts with um, a company such as Vitro, which is making uh, leather in labs. This is a huge addressable market. The meat market itself, excluding seafood, is $1.4 trillion. Uh, that is the size of the economy of Spain. The seafood market is estimated to be between 200 and 300 billion US dollars uh, around the world. And as, as Lou will tell you, uh, you know, seafood is highly contaminated. Uh, lots of problems in, in fishing at the moment and overfishing. Uh, and then the material market, uh, the materials market is even bigger. So we're looking at an addressable market of maybe $5 trillion, which is twice the size of the UK economy. So it's a huge potential prize for the companies that uh, are at the forefront of this. And uh, so in the pandemic, uh, looking for something to do and being really interested in this area and having the best minds available. Uh, I interviewed 35 people, including the two gentlemen who are on the call today. Uh, and with the help of my uh, wonderful team, we've uh, produced this book, uh, which is a compendium of all the companies and the opportunities uh, in the sector. Uh, we think it will be one of the best performing uh, sectors for investors in the future. And also it will have a huge and positive human impact.
the, the book will be updated um, as it goes along. Uh, and of course, there's a website that will, where any new news will be uh, posted to the website so people can keep on top of the, uh, of the situation. Um, there'll be a lot of money deployed in this sector. Uh, the regulatory path is much easier than in biotech, which is my day job. Um, and uh, very soon, many of us will be trying out the, uh, the stuff that these companies are producing. And let me say that the 30 companies that we think are viable and interesting in this sector, all of them have working prototypes. They have something that you can taste, feel, or whatever. And so this is a, a massively exciting opportunity. Um, I urge you, if you can, to, to read the book. Uh, and um, I am now going to introduce my two co-panelists uh, today who've generously given up their time. And I'll start with Professor Mark Post of uh, Maastricht University. Here he is with his uh, impressive library behind him. And uh, Mark is, uh, as many of you will know, is the man who unveiled the first uh, cell ag, that is a, 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 a burger that was produced from cells as opposed to from living animals in 2013. Uh, the cost of that was $300,000 or a very high figure. And the cost along uh, with Moo's law has come down to a much lower figure. And Mark's company is extremely exciting and we're pleased to be uh, an investor in, in, in his company and he'll tell us about his company. And I'm also going to introduce uh, Lou Cooperhouse, um, if he can, yep, we'll see him in his uh, home office with a, an atlas behind him. And uh, Lou is uh, a fantastic CEO of uh, Blue Nalu, which is the world's leading uh, seafood company uh, using cell agricultural techniques uh, or aquaculture, as, as he will call it, um, and is very close uh, to having its first products on the US market and approved by the regulator, which is the uh, FDA in the case of seafood. Um, we are also uh, decent sized investors in Lou's company. And I think Lou's got some exciting news to impart to us today. But I'm first of all going to ask Mark if I may, to talk for five to seven minutes about his journey in this field, what he sees as the major driving forces, how his company is going to get products to the consumers. Uh, Mark, by the way, is based in Netherlands, as you may have guessed from being uh, the professor at Maastricht University. And um, uh, what he sees as the challenges uh, and uh, how they can be overcome. So Mark, if you wouldn't mind giving us a seven minute expose, that would be fantastic. Yeah, sure, uh, Jim, and thanks for the uh, the introduction and, and the entire expose, which is a lot of the um, introduction to what I typically tell audiences if I introduce this subject. Um, what I really like about the book is that it not only gives that uh, compendium of companies that are involved in this space, but it also gives a lot of detail on how the technology actually works. And um, uh, obviously this is, you know, for people who are not in biotech or in biology is, is somewhat difficult to grasp. Um, and there are, there are many, many aspects of it that um, need to come together to basically get a product out to the market at a reasonable price and a good quality. Um, the technology has been there for a long time. 
uh, at least 30 years. Um, it just has never been industrialized. It was always kind of in the realm of biomedical kind of research, um, but the technology is not that new. It's actually quite old already. So uh, what are the challenges? The challenges are to scale it up, as already mentioned, to this was never done at an industrial scale, to scale it up, um, cell production, to scale it up, you have to move from traditional cell culture to large bioreactors. Uh, you have to kind of see whether your cells grow in those bioreactors, um, what the conditions are. Um, it's not rocket science, but you have to go through those steps. Um, the components initially are very expensive. It's, it's mentioned in the book and already mentioned by Jim that some of those pharma-grade components that we are working with, uh, because that is historically what um, is available, um, are very expensive and there's no particular need why they are expensive. It's just something that you have to work with and you have to gradually um, try and find new sources for those materials that are food or feed grade and, and much cheaper. There are a couple of good examples of that. Um, Obviously, making the product high quality um, in terms of nutritional value, but also taste and, and cooking behavior is, um, is something that has never been done before. So, so that needs to be uh, developed. And a, a company like ours spends, uh, um, focuses attention on all those different aspects. So we are currently with 70 people. We have funding for the next uh, two and a half years. I guess that's the bad news if you want to um, invest in us right now, it would be somewhat difficult. You have to wait a little bit. Um, but uh, with those um, 70 people, we are addressing successively all those problems, uh, uh, scaling up, getting price down, uh, and improving the quality of the product. And most importantly, is to remove all the animal components from uh, that uh, part. If you Again, traditionally in the medical research, um, people didn't care about animal components, whether you would culture cells in the presence of serum, nobody cared because it was low volume and um, it was readily available and really not that expensive. Um, if you want to really transform the meat industry, you have to get rid of all those animal components because they are typically derived from animals um, and they're not replicative like the cells. Um, so as, as uh, Jim mentioned from, a half a gram of tissue, you can make thousands and thousands of kilos of meat because the cells are replicative, but the materials are not. So you have to change the materials to, for instance, from algae or um, synthetic or whatever you want to do. For uh, the serum to uh, grow cells in large quantities, uh, there is a described system for that. You have to find that recipe for every cell. You have to kind of fine tune it, but that's relatively easy. Um, but then you have to source those growth factors in a different way. So uh, currently all the companies are doing this um, in different for, we are focusing on beef because that's the biggest impact on the environment. Um, others are focusing on chicken or pork or fish. You can basically do that with every animal that has uh, these, uh, these cells in their muscle that you can grow up. Um, and um, uh, everybody is kind of focusing on uh, these same problems that you have to fine tune a little bit for every product that you uh, develop. Um, we are focusing on minced meat, uh, but there's already one company out there focusing on whole cuts, same tissue engineering technology, but 
a slightly higher com uh, level of complexity. So it takes a little bit longer to get it to the market. Um, we have recently seen the first regulatory approval in Singapore for a chicken product. So a lot of the processes that um, are involved in getting uh, eventually a cell-based uh, meat on the market have been approved, at least in Singapore. So if you want to uh, take a bite, fly to Singapore, get a, well, don't do that because that would be not environmentally sound, but um, uh, you can actually uh, do that. Um, and that's a big deal to that that has happened uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, for sure this year, we're going to see a lot of these applications uh, to the FDA, to EFSA in Europe, um, and to the counterparts in Israel and in uh, Singapore. So my, my view on this is obviously I'm biased because I'm, I'm very passionate about this uh, technology. But my view is that it has the potential to transform the entire meat industry. And I'm often asked, um, you know, do you see in the end kind of a parallel industry, uh, a regular conventional meat industry and a um, cell-based meat industry and a plant-based? I can see the plant-based and the cell-based um, kind of going hand in hand. But I, I really don't see a future for a traditional meat industry if these products um, deliver the promise that they have in terms of um, uh, uh, griddle par parity, if you like, um, uh, and also uh, quality. Um, so these products, I think, for the first time are really creating exactly the same tissue as we are used to, and that is a big advantage. That's a fantastic introduction, Mark. And, uh, you know, I think that... Um, when when people read the book they'll understand just how significant mark has been and is for this industry and uh so um uh it's a real real privilege to have you here today mark and okay. so i'll turn to lou now and ask him to give a similar introduction to how he sees things developing particularly the seafood industry which blue nalu is the world leader in and how quickly uh, you know you see scale up and and what you're doing well, thanks so much, Jim, and, and just want to do a, a shout out for uh, for your, your tremendous book you put together. And, uh, and as Mark mentioned, it's just uh, it's great to see just a comprehensive list of the companies in the space. And we are all witnessing just an exciting time in the food industry. As Mark used the word transformative, it's absolutely the right word. Uh, we are on the beginning of a of a, a monumental change to the protein supply. Uh, and what we will see year after year will be quite transformative and we'll, we'll all witness just a, a total change in our supply chain. Um, and actually it's great to be on this panel with, with uh, Mark as well, because um, my, my background is, as you know, Jim is uh, you know, 35 years in the food industry and I've always been at the forefront of food innovation, technology commercialization. And it was actually when I saw the New York Times article with Mark Post picture on it, I said, oh my God, that is absolutely transformative. Um, that is a game changer for the protein supply chain. Uh, to make an animal product without an animal, I literally called that gym and I was doing a lot of public speaking in the Holy Grail. This was an absolutely transformative opportunity to make a big difference. And um, as, I, as I thought more about this industry and I was excited to see uh, most of meat and others that have launched in, uh, in the meat and poultry sector, I, I recognized uh, 
something that I felt was a, a really huge opportunity, which was seafood. Um, you know, uh, as in, in my career, I've, I've certainly seen consumers uh, transition from products that are healthy for themselves to healthy for the planet. They are spending money based on their social environmental beliefs. Um, is no food is no longer about sustenance. It is really making a, a statement about what you believe in. It has become a bit social and political, frankly. Um, and consumers want to see a sustainable solution, but they also don't want to compromise on flavor, texture, mouthfeel. They want ideally the same great experience they've always enjoyed with, with meat or poultry or seafood. So what we've seen with plant-based is that generation one, if you will. So plant-based products, as you mentioned, Jim, like Impossible and Beyond have done just that. We've had plant-based, uh, just as we've had uh, cellular technology for many years, as Mark mentioned, we've had plant-based products for many years, but what's changed is now you don't need to give up the, the, the flavor, the texture, the mouthfeel. You can enjoy the same experience that you love about meat, but it's all plant-based. Uh, if you will, you could have your, your cake and eat it too, in this case, your beef and eat it too. Um, and uh, so what Mark really demonstrated was version 2.0, you know, a, a really very compelling opportunity to make the actual same as animal product without the animal. And as I look at the opportunities in protein, I was really uh, quite excited, uh, as you know, Jim, about the seafood opportunity. Global demand for seafood is at all time high. Our global supply is diminishing. Uh, uh, wild capture fisheries has been flat for decades now. Aquaculture cannot keep up. We cannot feed the planet, period. Um, we need a new supply chain solution. On top of that, our supply chain of seafood is highly vulnerable, very variable. And here we are in still uh, grappling with this pandemic. We all know how vulnerable our supply chain is. Think about the seafood sector. It's imported in, in countries around the world. Frequently above 90% of, of seafood is imported. Um, think about the environmental footprint of maybe traveling 10,000 miles, uh, going through maybe 30%, 50% bycatch, uh, doing damage to our, the, the bottoms of our oceans and, and, our, and our coral and, and our precious ecosystem um, and all the animal suffering that occurs uh, and shipping that product that then experiences maybe a 50 or 60% yield when it gets to the restaurant. And all of that, you know, the, 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 the fins, the tail, the bones, the skin gets thrown in the garbage. We just can't make fish talk. And uh, it's very inefficient, frankly. Um, and it's highly variable. And the quality and the freshness is something that does not exist. So the opportunity to make a 100% yielded product made, if you will, locally, uh, or certainly within a, a far less uh, environmental footprint than exists today, is totally transformative to our global supply chain. We can convert from a, what today is a supply restricted model for seafood to a demand driven model. We can literally sell whatever what consumers want to buy. So uh, as you know, Jim, our whole goal uh, at Bunalu was to develop cell-based seafood, um, which I initially did call cellular agriculture. But since then we've gone through some nomenclature research and cell-based is something that uh, we feel is the more appropriate term for this technology. Um, particularly when it comes to seafood, uh, is not confusing at all to consumers in that context. Um, and we've really developed a, a, a whole platform technology to do a wide array of fin fish species. Uh, we begin with mahi-mahi. Uh, we've already established uh, well over 100 stable cell lines of bluefin tuna. 
Um, and we also are doing red snapper and other species as well. So we see ourselves uh, having the ability to uh, have now all the building blocks to ultimately launch a broad array of finfish species. And we're certainly excited by other categories of fish in the future as well. Um, so uh, in, our, in our commercialization strategy, um, we have uh, identified this five phase uh, uh, approach where phase five is what profitability looks like. And of course, none of us in this industry are there today uh, in that equivalent model. Um, but it can be extraordinarily profitable uh, and just be extraordinarily transformative as well uh, and, and, and socially appropriate um, for all of us. And uh, that being said, we're uh, very excited to be in a kind of middle, the middle ground of that five phase strategy, phase three, uh, a place that we will be able to launch product. And I know several companies uh, in this space that are profiled in your book, Jim, are, are entering the pilot uh, phase uh, stage where they can get product on the market in a small way. So none of us are doing anything large right now, but we all need to go through various engineering milestones and biological milestones to, uh, to move up the stage gate process to get product into market. Um, but uh, it's our goal, Jim, is by the end of this year, 2021, that we will have limited amounts of product in commerce. Um, and we have uh, made a commitment to a pilot facility about 40,000 square feet uh, here in San Diego. Um, so we're very excited to bring products to market, uh, hopefully, uh, and not too, not too distant future. But again, uh, thank you. And I also want to do a shout out to GFI, Good Food Institute, which I know the proceeds uh, of your book are going towards. And, and, and really, uh, GFI has been so instrumental uh, in launching this whole industry uh, with such a tremendous amount of uh, intelligence uh, that you know, really helped investors uh, and really has helped uh, policymakers and others to really have a better understanding of, uh, of this space. So uh, thank you both for all that you've done. Thank you very much, Lou. That was super. Um, both of you have done an outstanding job in introducing. Um, I'd like to ask, if I may, uh, if you could describe, because not everyone is obviously familiar with uh, what we're talking about here in detail. If you can describe, Mark, starting with you, the challenges that you face both regulatory and also in scaling up and producing large quantities of food. I think that would be interesting to the audience, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, the, the challenge of scaling up is to, to transform the traditional culture from a, a planar system in culture dishes to large bioreactors. And the bioreactors are there, um, it's just, you have to uh, really um, optimize the conditions for these particular cells. The, the bioreactors are typically used for either bacteria or yeast, um, cells that grow in suspension. Uh, it's very easy there. And also th those cells are very robust. If you do that with mammalian cells, they, they typically have to grow on a surface. So they cannot really grow in suspension. So you basically use microcarriers or some other surface that the cells have to adhere to. And that, that surface is suspended in the, um, in the bioreactor. Um, and those conditions have, um, yeah, have to be optimized. So it's a lot of variables, bioreactor conditions, speed of impellers, the medium, the microcarriers, the cells themselves, um, adhesion factors. There's a lot of variables that you need to optimize. Um, and that is set against the 
um, the fact that still some of those consumables, such as the medium, which is rightfully pointed out in the book, is roughly 70% of all the cost, um, uh, that medium is still uh, pharma grade and still expensive. So we are doing these things in parallel. We are exchanging uh, the medium components by pharma grade, and we are at the same time optimizing the, um, the, the bioreactor systems for scaling up. Um, in our case, that's not only true for the cell production, but also for the tissue production. The cell production bioreactors are there. The tissue uh, bioreactors are not there. We're basically designing them ourselves and we are automating and, uh, making, them, and making them larger and larger. Um, in terms of regulatory, there are not that many hurdles, actually. We are quite convinced that this is absolutely safe. Um, Cells are pretty finicky, so if you do something that is detrimental to cells or toxic for cells, you will find out very quickly. So in itself, the technology is a good marker of uh, non-toxic conditions that you are applying. But still, you have to go through all those um, uh, compositional analyses to show to the regulatory officials that they are, uh, that this is safe. One of the I guess biggest challenges that we have in terms of regulation is that um, the regulatory officials are, it's also new to them. So we're kind of co-developing with the regulatory officials. And I know that Lou has spent a lot of time on that with, uh, with the FDA. And of course, the, the recent developments in Singapore are helping there a lot. Um, but we, we kind of have to co-develop and also instruct in a way the regulatory officials on, on how they have to look at this. That's true for kind of the first players, I guess. After that, it will be um, become a lot easier. That's great. If I could just ask a very brief supplementary question before I turn to Lou. Uh, you are living in the Netherlands, which is the second biggest food exporter in the world. I think most people don't <laughs> understand that. Um, you know, I'm not going to make any criticisms, but we know that some of the ways that food is grown in the Netherlands is extremely intensive. And for people like myself, and I assume both Lou and you, who don't eat meat, it's fairly revolting in the way that uh, the industry is. Do you find a lot of resist? I mean, you're, the Netherlands is actually one of the leaders in the whole field. Is there a lot of resistance? Is there a lot of resentment? Is there a lot of pushback from what we call agro Luddites, people who don't understand that this is the way of the future? Actually, surprisingly not. Um, and I think we also have kind of the, 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 the time working for us, right? Um, we recently had a big discussion in the Netherlands about um, uh, nitrous oxide, uh, one of the greenhouse gas, uh, gases that is related to um, uh, creating livestock. We are, as you know, a, a very densely populated country and we have a very intense uh, pig farming industry. And um, so there's a lot of pressure on those farmers to, um, to either move out of the business or to uh, reduce their um, nitrous oxide um, emission. And surprisingly, there is a program now offering farmers to bail out. Um, so we, you can buy them, we, the government is going to buy them up. Um, and initially 40% of the pig farmers in the Netherlands were interested in that program. Um, and so, uh, so, so to the extent that it's now oversubscribed, 
Um, so it's, it, there's, there's really, we really have the time kind of working in favor for us that um, there's relatively little pushback from um, society. There's also not a lot of active support, I must say, from um, our government. Uh, there is kind of a, you know, wait and see approach, which I already find somewhat troublesome, to be honest. Okay, well, that, that's a great response. Thank you. Um, Lou, in the United States, which is the biggest market, I mean, there's, you know, and also the highest concentration of innovative companies such as Blue Nalu in the field. Um, this, as I understand it, the seafood industry is not as well um, organized in terms of lobby against what you're doing. But of course, the beef industry is. And, you know, there are all sorts of cattlemen's associations which are extremely well funded. Um, uh, which are pushing back on on what's happening. Um, do you sense uh, that there is going to be uh, not not just? I think regulatory problem is is not there for you. But do you sense that there'll be a a sort of industry pushback that could affect the rollout of what we're talking about today? Um, and if so, how do you think it can be overcome? And the last thing I want to ask you, because I know that you've got really exciting news. Uh, to tell us about, um, if you could just describe your really exciting news to the audience. No, th thanks, Jim. Maybe I'll start with the exciting news. So, so um, uh, it, we announced uh, uh, earlier this week uh, our, our recent financing, uh, 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 bringing in sixty million dollars uh, to Blunalu that that uh, follows uh, a, a prior investment of uh, twenty million or ARAM. Um, which we announced uh, earlier in, uh, I guess it's been uh, back in uh, early 2020, I should say. So, so, and that $60 million will really help uh, finance us towards getting to our next big milestone, that phase three I described earlier, um, getting our pilot facility totally completed and, and fully equipped, um, getting, our, getting all of our documentation uh, in place uh, to satisfy the requirements of the FDA, uh, and then to literally launch into market, uh, very small way again, but in, in restaurants uh, here in the United States. Um, uh, and, and our goal, Jim, is to really uh, demonstrate, you know, uh, what we know will be to us is quite intuitive and very obvious. And we've done a fair amount of market research already uh, that demonstrates tremendous uh, interest at both food service and directly consumers. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we want to actually see how the product performs as an appetizer, as an entree, in a white tablecloth, uh, fast casual, different environments, different methods of communication, um, and really to see how the restaurant uh, volume can even increase because our product is available on the menu, uh, that, that people actually want to go to these locations. We've already seen that in plant-based restaurants um, where there are, you know, I think, you know, it's a, as, as we all say, a rising tide lifts all boats. Restaurants will win, entrepreneurs will win, investors will win. You know, the whole whole industry is transforming. So we want to really get the documentation to support that. So any exciting news for us, but it's exciting news for the whole industry and very relevant to your book, Jim, that this industry is really just beginning to see investment. Um, and we, we anticipate that there'll be a great deal more because there, as Mark mentioned, there's so many different niches and sectors. Um, there's also leather, there's also fat, there's also uh, variations on and gelatin and, and collagen and other sectors that are uh, in a numerous uh, companies in the dairy-based sector. So exciting times ahead. Um, I just want to also address some of the challenges you mentioned too. 
in the case of cell-based seafood, you know, there was, uh, as Mark mentioned, a fair amount of knowledge on mammalian cell culturing technology, but very little uh, in, in the world of, of fish. So we literally had to create from a bit of a, a white piece of paper, you know, the IP that was surround how to actually propagate fish cells um, and, and get stable cell lines. And as Mark mentioned, uh, we, we all have a similar commitment to an animal-free media uh, and, and to accomplish that uh, is, is clearly part of all of our mandates um, so that we could ultimately launch with a product that uh, you know, really meets uh, you know, all, all the goals that we all have for uh, uh, our product is not, uh, arguably is not vegan because we are selling fish. Um, but it, you know, we think that all, all consumers will find this very attractive. It's the same characteristics as seafood, all the great tastes, but no mercury, no microplastics, no toxins, no environmental pollutants, absolutely sustainable, and of course, delicious. So, so we're excited to launch that. Um, but in this industry, there, yeah, the biology was needed to be developed, the engineering, the operations, the scale production, uh, the, the, the consistent uh, production that needs to be de determined. Uh, but also regulatory around the world. Uh, we're very thankful to Singapore Food Agency for being the first to actually open, be the first domino, if you will. And we see many of these other countries uh, recognizing uh, this industry and embracing it. Uh, this industry also enables food security. Um, so Singapore, because of the 30 by 30 mandate, you know, they identified that this is critical for their, their future population to displace imports and have a more food secure nation. So we're seeing this, Jim, in the Middle East, uh, Africa, United, United States also imports about 90% of our seafood. So all countries have this food security challenge. So what we're doing here is really offering a new solution here. In our case, uh, one of your questions was about how we're working with industry. We're working very closely with industry and in, in the, the, what's also beautiful about seafood is true to the adage, there's so many fish in the sea. So we're literally targeting species that are uh, uh, typically imported uh, overfished, illegally fished, high in mercury. Uh, so we're looking for those particular sweet spots where we can really make a big difference. So mahi-mahi, for example, cannot be farm-raised successfully. Um, and bluefin tuna uh, very marginally can be farm-raised, but you know, we're really developing an oxymoron in bluefin tuna. It's a, it's a sustainable, mercury-free, available year-round, uh, close, close to demand, um, and also one that can be democratized. So it's no longer available just for those that can afford it, but it can be available to all. And, uh, but, uh, so we are not seeing uh, any, any threats from the seafood sector. True, it's not as organized as the meat sector, but also because we're working in, in partnership with the seafood industry uh, as really a third solution, wild caught, farm raised, and now cell based, uh, being three options for consumers to give them choice. Uh, but as Mark mentioned, over time, we see, our, we see the cell-based category making greater and greater inroads into conventional seafood products uh, as we expand the breadth and depth of our offerings. Thanks, Lou. Um, in a second, we're going to move over to very many questions have been asked by the uh, audience. Uh, but Anthony Chow, who's going to be moderating uh, the question and answer part, who's, as you know, my long-standing colleague and has been, uh, you know, triaging the good investments uh, from the bad investments. And we've invested now about $100 million in the sector in the last year or so. Um, is, uh, and, uh, and I are both in Dubai and Dubai is a perfect example. It's obviously a key constituent of the United Arab Emirates. 
when 95% of the food is imported. And, you know, the solution for food security in the past has been to buy farmland in overseas locations. Now, the Middle East or Singapore or Hong Kong or countries, even my own country, the United Kingdom, where we import half of our food, uh, and we have the opportunity of developing internally produced protein supplies um, at potentially lower cost, much less environmental damage, and on much, much smaller amounts of land, about 1% of the land that's used to grow um, uh, conventionally farmed animals. So these countries in particular are really interested in what's going on. And uh, you know, in our conversations with Mark and Lou, we've been talking about how they might be able to expand and beyond just the, the European market in the case of Mark and the American market in the case of Lou. There's a huge opportunity for uh, uh, all the com combined good companies to make a very, very positive impact in lots of ways in the world. So I'm gonna now introduce everyone who doesn't know him to Anthony. And uh, Anthony will moderate, I think that's the right way of putting it, the, um, uh, the, the very many questions I can see that have come from the audience. So, uh, and he'll be addressing the questions to Mark and to Lou primarily. So uh, in turn, so a rapid fire, go, go ahead, Anthony. As quickly as I can. Okay, so, um, you know, Jim just spoke about uh, the UAE, and of course Singapore has been the first country to uh, authorize these products. Could you talk about this from an opportunity for a sovereign to create employment and a brand new industry? What are the numbers of people likely to be uh, employed in a factory, uh, this industry at a, at a higher That's level? Mark first. That's Mark first. Mark. Uh, yeah. Um... Uh, of course, the employment will be a little bit different, as has always been the case if you transform an industry. So you go from um, uh, farmers, basically, to people who operate bioreactors, and it's a different skill set. It's not necessarily extremely highly um, um, trained, but it's, the, it's still a very different skill set. Um, and, and yes, so it will be mostly a transformation of the work, which I think a lot of people will actually look forward to. Um, I once had a remark when I was spoken when I was speaking to the Minnesota Pork Board uh, that a lot of those entrepreneurs are now um, shoving pig manure at minus twenty um, would actually look forward to doing this in a centrally heated environment with bioreactors. But um, um, it will transform, and I, I I'm not too afraid that it will lead to. Uh, less jobs. Um, bioreactors need quite a bit of attention um, 24 hours a day. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, of course, the rest of the meat industry or the fish industry for that matter, the distribution and packing and, and um, uh, uh, processing will remain the same as is outlined in the book. Um, Lou, actually, we've got so many questions, I'm going to uh, get you to answer another one. Can we talk about um, genetic modification and um, whether or not it's used and uh, fundamentally is it a concern in any event? Yeah, it's a great question, Anthony. As, as, your, as your book uh, lays out also, uh, there's, as Mark mentioned earlier, there's so many um, different methods to actually uh, develop cell-based uh, meat, poultry, or seafood products. Um, and, and genetic modification uh, is used by some. 
uh, it is, you know, it is something that Blunalo has determined that we uh, did not want to go forward with. We wanted to see if it could be accomplished without uh, 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 doing uh, genetic modification. Um, and we were able to demonstrate that we could. So, so uh, we realized, uh, and, and frankly, the reason for that, Anthony, was not so much about genetic engineering, but we recognize that this category is brand new and like any new category, uh, to be successful, we need to identify you know, the pathway to greatest consumer adoption and the, and the least amount of regulatory challenges. Uh, and and as, as we designed our strategy at the very beginning, uh, we, we looked at doing it this, this direction uh, so that when consumers actually have the product in their hands, they, you know, they will certainly be a bit curious Wow, this is different, uh, made differently, but we wanted to kind of minimize any challenges. So uh, on the flip side of that, Anthony, we, we are really doing everything we can to communicate to the consumer that absolutely this product is safe, absolutely it tastes delicious, it has the same nutritional profile, it's prepared the same because it is the same. It is the same uh, seafood product or, or beef or poultry as others are doing, uh, just made differently. Uh, so, uh, but that's the answer uh, to that question. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of talk, uh, particularly in the, the media, about the, the cost of these growth factors. And we've already touched on that a little bit. But um, can we talk about how big a challenge getting those uh, growth factors down in cost truly is? To Mark. Mark. Uh, yeah, sure. Um... So uh, what is mentioned in the book, it's uh, actually nice to see it repeated because I mentioned that all the time, a, a gram of FGF2, which is a growth factor that we all use, um, um, costs um, uh, around a million euro per gram, uh, which is ridiculous. It's a recombinant protein. It's not a very difficult protein to make. It's just 150 amino acids. Um, it's easier to make than insulin. Insulin currently, pharma grade, is sold for 300 euro per gram, right? So there's no reason why these are so expensive other than that it is traditionally a very low volume, high value market. Um, I'm using the case of insulin because everybody knows it. Um, but actually in the feed industry, recombinant enzymes, protein enzymes are being made for less than 10 euro per gram. And since these growth factors are so powerful, we use so small quantities of it um, at a cost of 10 euro per gram, it's no longer a cost factor for us. It's kind of negligible as a cost factor for medium. And then you move to the other ingredients such as the amino acids, the sugars, the vitamins, and the minerals to get the cost further down to a, a very, very low level. Thanks, Lou. Anything to add to that, or? Yeah, I think just to uh, embellish on what Mark mentioned, um, the, the you know, we're we're all making a food product, not a biopharma product. Uh, so I think in that in that in that mental model, um, the biopharma industry, as Mark mentioned, you know, works in the world of of micrograms and and grams is massive volume. The food industry works on truckloads, or 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 train loads, or or container loads, um, and uh, so as this, as this industry matures, which it will, um, we will see economies of scale uh, come rapidly into this business. So one, we are migrating from farmer grade supply chain profit margins, which as Mark mentioned, are, are ridiculously high to food grade margins, which are normalized. 
um, and, uh, and are considerably different. Uh, and then you, and you put on top of that, the economies of scale um, and, and some of the large suppliers of, uh, of, of the ingredients that we will require in our media formulation, it will come down de demonstrably uh, as, as factories come, in, come into place. Thank you. Um, a question that I, I guess result, uh, revolves around regulation to some extent. Can you talk about the nutritional profile of uh, the final product here? How similar is that going to be um, to conventionally farmed or caught uh, meat? Um, and is talk about that in the context, yeah, context of regulation, please. For Mark. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, this is important because it is actually a regulatory requirement at some point that you show nutritional equivalence to the product that you want to replace. Um, so in terms of when you make a meat a muscle cell, um, it has, um, and you differentiate it into a um, sufficiently differentiated muscle cell, it has the protein profile of a regular muscle cell. Um, <clears throat> currently, you know, we are still improving that as much as you can. Um, whether we get to the full 100% of protein level, we, we don't know. Um, we for sure are trying to get there. Um, but um, the, the, the composition of those proteins is exactly the same. Um, same is true, by the way, for fat. We are currently also making fat tissue and the fat composition is uh, the, the same as the fat composition of uh, a regular fat piece of uh, a cow. Um, there are a couple of other um, things like vitamin B12. Vitamin B12 is a much cherished um, component of meat or of fish for that matter, any animal uh, product. And, but that's not made by the animal itself. It's a bacterial product. So we have to add the vitamin B12 to the medium for the cells to take it up and to, uh, to use it. It's very cheap very easy to do so it's not a big deal but you have to be conscious of the fact that you have to do these things to uh, really meet the same um, uh, nutritional equivalence thanks and um, now Lou on to you um, you know there's a lot of discussion about how processed uh, some of the plant-based uh, alternative proteins are the impossible and beyond um, where do you see uh, cultivated meat in that context uh, we, we call it cell-based. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but, um, we call it cultivated. Uh, <laughs> six of one, half dozen of the other. Right? Um, uh, so your question was, where do we see plant-based? So I, I think you know, plant-based uh, clearly uh, we've seen from investment point of view is just really you know, going you know, rapid fire, just tremendous success uh, for these products being adopted at, at even quick service restaurants around the globe. So very exciting. And, and just like we saw in other industry sectors coming out of the food industry, we will see a continual uh, evolution in the plant-based side to uh, less and less ingredients, more, more you know, uh, the food industry obviously believes less is more when it comes to ingredient statements. Um, and you know, we, we all made, if you will, on behalf of those in plant-based, we all made an exception to do a bit more to get started with, and you and you can see the excitement and enthusiasm with the initial uh, reaction to plant-based products, which do have very long ingredient statements. But yes, you will see those come down over time uh, to be uh, a lot cleaner labels and so forth. 
And then the beauty of, of cell-based products, as Mark described, you know, the, the, the regulatory authorities want to see that this is same as, you know, so this was this industry, you know, some people call this, you know, we called it cultivated and cell-based, but some people initially called this in vitro because we're making this outside of the body, just like a human being is. We're not making a living being, but we're making a fish fillet in our case. Uh, but the logic of making something in a new way is, 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 is old news. Um, and that's what exactly what we're doing here. But in the case of the regulatory authorities, when they want to show that it's the same as. What that means to the consumer is the label should say just what it is. It's red snapper, mahi mahi, bluefin tuna, period. It's, you know, if we add ingredients to that because we're blending it with other ingredients and those should be disclosed. But if the product is considered to be, you know, natural from the regulatory point of view, you know, uh, then that's, that's how it should be labeled just as is. Thanks, Luke. Okay. All right, so um, we've come to the end of the hour. Um, I'm really, really grateful that Mark and Lou took the time to give this fascinating insight uh, into this industry. We are on the cusp of a major revolution, which, uh, you know, some of the uh, questions, there've been multiple questions that Anthony unfortunately couldn't get through uh, the majority of them, but things like, you know, is this meat kosher or halal? And the answer is yes. Uh, and I imagine that applies to seafood as well. Um, what happens to all the farm animals? Uh, well, obviously farm animals at the moment have very short lives. So if there's a reduction in the uh, cultivation of intensively farmed animals, uh, there will be a natural uh, depletion of flocks, herds, you name it. And um, those that remain will presumably have a much happier and better life than those uh, that unfortunately uh, go through the system at the moment. I, I put in the book that the average American, and it's only because it's not nothing to do with, uh, it's not an attack on America here, Luke. It's basically because the statistics are there, eats 80,000 live animals in the course of a lifetime, which is an incredible statistic. Um, so we are, you know, since the Second World War eating vast amounts of animals that lead brutish and short lives. I mean, chickens are three times the size they were in 1950. Most of them can't even walk when they're, uh, when they're killed at the average age of 23 days. So it's, it's a pretty gruesome industry in many ways. And, uh, you know, there are links for people to look at. Um, the plant-based stuff is fantastic, as Lou's just said, but the stuff that Mark and Lou are doing is incredible. It's here and now. Uh, it's going to be at scale, hence the name Moose Law. Uh, and I would just, as an investor, uh, I would just watch this space. There is, uh, Anthony is uh, leading the team that's analyzing and investing in uh, some of these companies through the listed company in London called Agronomics. I don't know of any other vehicle that people can access companies such as Mark's Mosa or Lou's Blue Nalu. Um, and um, we are super excited to be part of this. It's a human impact investment like no other because we all have to eat. So let's eat better and let's join the revolution. And thank you very much indeed for everyone for attending today. Thanks. Thanks, Mark and Lou. Yeah, thank you. thanks, Jim.